Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us snow. You can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. Hey guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. I know that it's been a two-week hiatus and... Um, all that was because this is Adam, as if you don't know. I was gone for about on a two-week trip out to the West Coast. I went to see, go see a family member in San Diego, and then I drove up to L.A., where I got to hang out with a few people from the show, uh, namely Robert Guffey, Adam Gorightly, Walter Bosley, and Greg Bishop. So what you're about to hear is some of the recordings that I did with my handy Zoom recorder, uh, two of which were in restaurants, and the other I'll tell you about in a second. But first, I spoke to Robert Guffey in Long Beach, California. That was on Wednesday, June the 6th, and on June the 7th, I went up to a place called Morro Bay and met up with Adam Gorightly, which was kind of halfway between where... He lives and where I was staying uh, down close to Los Angeles. So I did an interview there with him in a restaurant. And then on the third day, on the 8th, I got to walk around walk around San Bernardino with Walter Bosley. And I got to have a kind of an Empire of the Wheel kind of mini tour of some of the places and spots that he talks about in his book, his first book, Empire of the Will. So we got to see where the Urbita Springs Lake used to be, where the body of Cora Stanton was found, and that which is now a shopping mall. And then we also got to go to see where her gravesite is as well. And Cora Stanton is the primary figure in the Empire of the Will story. So there was another recording that I did as well with Walter bosley and greg bishop we went out to the integratron and giant rock which is in the middle of the desert and i did do a recording with the two guys there uh, right next to the integratron however the wind was blowing really really hard that day i stupidly did not have something to cover the microphones on the on the recorder and so there was a lot of wind so I did not include that in this episode because there was a lot that was unusable. I may try to mix it down 
at a certain point and try to see if I can isolate some parts of it. And I may put that up for, for our patrons, but I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to do that yet. So that's basically it guys. Uh, we will be back, uh, just you know, coming up next week with an interview with the, uh, Melissa Martell and John Chadwick from ESP, Extrasensory Perception, uh, their YouTube channel and their podcast. We're going to be talking to those guys. And a quick note as well. Um, I don't know if anyone has noticed, but Podomatic has been going through some changes. They've changed from HTTP to HTTPS, which has caused some problems with streaming from iTunes. Now, apparently I've been told as of this moment, I'm recording this on Monday the 18th, that Stitcher is okay. So if you are experiencing problems, please let us know at conspiranormal at gmail.com or get in touch with us on the Facebook site or send myself or Surfiel a message. Um, so, and also Rob, well, will not be joining us for the next show, but he will be back in about two weeks' time because he is super, super busy with festival season and uh, is pretty much incommunicado. So I hope you guys enjoy this, and we are going to start out with a nice little discussion I had with Robert Guffey in Long Beach, California. You guys have a good night. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back on Conspiracy Normal. Okay, here with Robert Guffey in Long Beach, California, in the LBC, right? So, at Enrique's. <laughs> at Enrique's, yes. Nice Mexican restaurant here. Um, and we were talking about Manly V. Hall. Talked about me possibly going to the Philosophical Research Society? Yes, the PRS. Right. Uh, the uh, Manly V. Hall, he, uh, he spoke, he continued lecturing right up until his death. I think he died um, in the early 90s. I'm thinking, uh, and he was thinking in, it was like 92, something like that. Like that. And he it was, was pretty late. And, and he was in his 90s, you yeah. know, and he was in a wheelchair, but his mind was still working. And he, uh, the people who, there were these young men who, uh, this, this one, one particular guy whose name escapes me at the moment, but he was the main caregiver for Manly P. Hall. Uh, and uh, apparently he was using his uh, position as the main caregiver to steal a lot of the rare occult manuscripts that Manly P. Hall had and he was like using and selling them like on the, the black market the black occult market you know uh, and also apparently like stealing a lot of money from him and they were at, Manly P. Hall was supposed to go lecture in Santa Barbara and halfway there he said he was feeling ill and said, I don't think I'm going to make it. And so they turned around and went back home. And at that point, they, they put him back to bed and he, he died. Uh, then his widow, Marie Hall, claimed that he had actually been murdered uh, by this guy who was taking care of him. And she actually did go to the police with this. The police investigated and decided that there was no foul play, that he died of natural causes. However, um, Abadiah Harris, who's the guy who now runs the PRS, uh, he actually mounted some sort of internal investigation into this guy who, 
who was the main caregiver, who essentially had taken over the PRS, and Abadiah Harris was successful in pushing him out because it turned out he really was stealing manuscripts, uh, rare folios, uh, and, and stealing a lot of money from, from Manly P. Hall. And I, that guy whose name I can't remember, uh, I can give it to you later on, uh, Abadiah Harris pushed that guy out, and eventually uh, he ended up dying, I believe, maybe from karma, I don't know, uh, not long afterwards. But since then, Abadiah Harris has run the PRS, and he's the one who puts on all the lectures. And, and so Stephen Heller, uh, Gnostic Bishop, Stephen Heller, he does lectures there, uh, and they're pretty fascinating. Uh, that you, if, if you can, if your schedule allows you to go to one of the lectures, you should. And they also do events on Sunday mornings there too. And I've seen, um, I've seen all kinds of you know uh, odd lectures there on alchemy, and all kinds of different stuff. Yeah, it would be cool to go to something like that. Maybe next time I'm here. The, the, I think uh, probably will be next time. You should, when you when you do come, uh, you should also try to go see Stephen Heller's Gnostic Church and the lectures that he does there. It, it used to be, um, a few years ago, there was a fire, and the original Gnostic church burned down, um, and it was located, if I remember correctly, I think it was on sunset, and it was it was the strangest thing, because I was, I was dating someone who, she was like, have you ever seen Stephen Heller's lectures? I said, no, I, I never have. So she took me down there, and... You wouldn't know it was a Gnostic church. It was just, it was just this this nondescript door, two doors down from Cheetahs, which was a strip club. So you had <laughs> Cheetahs, the strip club, and then two doors down was the Gnostic church. And you would go, you open the door, and inside, I think it's pretty fitting. It was, it was absolutely no, knowing the Gnostic mass. <laughs> it was absolutely fitting, and then and you'd go in, and there's like a little room of maybe about like thirty people uh, sitting there. And then in the same chair that Manly P. Hall used to sit in is Stephen Heller. And he has this thick Hungarian accent. And he's got this elaborate cane that looks kind of like the cane that, uh, that Lon Chaney had in The Wolfman, you know. And he would uh -huh. sit there, lean against the cane, and then just, just start talking, you know, about Gnostic symbolism in, uh, in Harry Potter or whatever, whatever the topic was, you know. And, uh, and then you could, after the Gnostic lecture... Then you could leave and go to Cheetahs down the street. So it was, it was like one-stop shopping. You could you could go to the Gnostic Church, get the esoteric lecture, and then go to the strip club. Uh, unfortunately, that place. <laughs> that, why not? It, it, exactly. So so the uh, uh, the place burned down. Just there was a fire. It, it caught fire and burned down. And so then they moved the whole Gnostic operation. Um, it's not in LA anymore, but it's somewhere close by. But you definitely, if you can see the lecture by Stephen Heller, which is, I think, every Friday night, uh, I, I recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. He's, the, he's sort of the... He's the expert. He's the expert on Gnosticism and all related uh, phenomena. Yeah, I'm going to have to come... I think I'm going to have to just come, to come explain a little bit more time. I was saying you go for four days visiting with my stepson and then I'm just here for like three days. Did you happen to visit the Whaley House? I did visit the Whaley House. Oh, you did house. visit the Whaley yes. House. Did you take any photographs or I anything? I did, I did. Uh, I, 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 now that used to be where SAIC was located. 
uh, SAIC, uh, Science Applications International, whatever the hell the acronym stands for, that, that's the corporation that was tied in with all the experimentation that was going on in San Diego with, with Damien. And that corporation was located right across the street from, from the Whaley House. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's right across the street now. It's like some little gift shop or something. <laughs> so I was wondering, because I remember you talking about that. Yeah. And I saw it, and I was like, what? what because I didn't know it was actually like not there anymore. Well, I, I, um, they moved. SCIC. What does that stand for? Science Applications... Industrial. International Corporation, okay. something like that. Okay. I'm, I'm blanking. Well, we got the science industrial, so we know that, that that's yeah. science application is definitely the first yeah. two. Okay. Uh, and and they so it was a huge building uh, that occupied a whole like block, you know. Uh, and they moved around about I think 2007, 2008. They moved and split off into two different corporations. Uh, one maintained the name SAIC, and then the other. Uh, it's now called Lidos, L-E-I-D-O-S, which is one of the major corporations that's involved in this uh, entire uh, gang stalking and experimentation and my lab phenomenon. Um, and the Lidos moved from San Diego to Virginia, which is appropriate location for it you know it's right next door to CIA headquarters so they can they can just meet they can take the subterranean tunnel yes, uh, yes. Plenty of those. right 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 next door so 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 Lidos is there uh, and they split off that was like 2008 and then SAIC moved so I don't know if I don't know if the half of the corporation that maintained the name SAIC, I don't know if they're still located somewhere in San Diego or if they moved as well. I'm not sure. But I know the Lido's half moved to Virginia. And so I, I've always been curious about that because it was so close to the Whaley House, and the Whaley House has this reputation as being like the most haunted house in, in, in California. If, so to say, in America. In, in America, yeah. right. Uh, and, you know, there were a lot of people executed there, you know, that's where they had their executions and stuff in, in San Diego. And yeah, there was a, you know, the gallows, and there was like was a Yankee Jack or somebody that was hung there. And yes. Supposedly he haunts the place, and I, I Frank Whaley haunts the place. And everybody haunts the place. Everybody yeah. haunts the place, yeah. <laughs> they, 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 I, I believe that that's, it was next to a mission or something like that, uh, and that's where they... Had it's all right the, adjacent to Old Town, so you have the Old Town Park. Yeah, and you walk just a little bit out of it, and then you're in that other, just a little other historical section, and that's where the Whaley House. Right, is. right. And I'm just, I'm curious if, if the SCIC was it just a coincidence they decided to build their headquarters right on that spot, or do these corporations seek out spots that have this kind of. Um, paranormal significance you know what I mean uh, these window areas as John Keel uh, calls them and uh, the, the zucchini uh, mushroom quesadilla is here yes it is tacos careful I play thank you
Um, As to the realism of it. You know, there's, a, there's an excellent podcast called Eating the Fantastic, uh-huh. and it's a guy, Scott Edelman, and he's a science fiction writer. And he also used to write, he used to write for Marvel Comics, and he created the character, the Scarecrow, which is like the weirdest Marvel superhero, because he's, he's a scarecrow that jumped out of a painting. And he like fights supernatural phenomena. Anyway, Scott Edelman, he's a science fiction writer, and he created this podcast called Eating the Fantastic, and he meets with various science fiction writers over lunch. And so the whole podcast is at different <laughs> restaurants. Uh, uh, That's so th- this is this is her like eating the paranormal, uh, I guess. Yeah, I have done the, I have done this before actually. I've uh, recorded at a restaurant, so. So, not, uh, not too unusual. What was the, uh, uh, what was your, you, now, this is your first time going to the Integratron? Yeah, this is my first time in uh, California. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, oh, excellent, excellent. That, well, that's the, <laughs> that's the perfect introduction to, to California. You go to the Integratron, uh-huh. you hang out with Greg Bishop and Walter Bosley, and then, and then you meet me, and then you go over to see Adam Go Rightly, and then go see the, the PRS, uh, that, that's... Yeah, you got I may, California. I may go see the PRS. I may go try to see if I can find it. Yeah, and, and uh, today, actually, that'd be great. Uh, and see see if there's a lecture going on. Uh, okay. and, and definitely if go into the library and, and check out that area. Um, I mean, what a what a nexus of, of weirdness. Because you have PRS. Not only was Manly P. Hall the best friends of, of Bela Lugosi. Uh, did you know yeah. that? That they were yeah, there friends? There was like a picture of him hypnotizing with those or something. Oh, yes. That was for the film yeah. Black Friday, uh-huh. 1940. In fact, if you go on YouTube and look up the uh, like Black Friday uh, trailer, uh, they, they, you can see Manly P. Hall in the trailer, and he's hypnotizing uh, Lugosi for a particular scene. Now, it could be that this was a publicity stunt to promote the movie, you know, and that he wasn't, Lugosi wasn't really being hypnotized. But according to Lugosi's son... Lugosi's son said that Lugosi really was hypnotized and he was concerned because Manly P. Hall was always trying to get on him to stop smoking cigars because he thought it was unhealthy for Bela to be smoking. Uh-huh. And Lugosi was concerned that when he was under, Manly P. Hall was going to take the, the opportunity to slip in some post-hypnotic suggestion to stop smoking. <laughs> and Lugosi was like really concerned about it. He was like, Manly, don't do that. You know, I, I want to keep smoking. You know, it will be very, I'll be very annoyed. If you cure me of my smoking addiction while I'm under, you know. And also, Boris Karloff said that, uh, he said, I think, I think he was really under because, you know, supposedly he hypnotized him to, to make him think that he was suffocating for a particular scene where the character was supposed to be suffocating and the purpose was supposed to be to add realism to, to his acting in that scene. Uh, and Karloff said, you know, at first I wasn't sure if this was just some stunt between Lugosi and Manly P. Hall. It was, but then I decided that he probably really was hypnotized because it was the only time I ever saw Bela put his back to the camera. It, it was, it was the only, every other time Lugosi would try everything he could to upstage Karloff or whoever was in the scene with him. And this was the only time where he didn't care that his face was not visible to the camera. So Karloff decided that he really was hypnotized for that reason. That's the power of Manly Exactly, yeah. To overcome the the actor's uh, vanity. Um, uh, And also, it's a nexus of weirdness because, did you know Sirhan Sirhan was a 
a frequent uh, uh, visitor to Manly P. Hall's lectures. Was he really? Uh, yeah, and of that, course... That's interesting. And that's interesting because we're recording we, this on the 6th. Right, yesterday. Yesterday was the, was the 50th anniversary uh -huh. of the uh -huh. assassination of Robert Kennedy. And uh, Manly P. Hall actually figures into the, um, the entire nexus of connections that Sirhan had because Sirhan was really into the Rosicrucians and he was really into hypnosis and self-hypnosis. Sirhan was an excellent uh, hypnotic subject. He could put himself under. Uh, he could put himself under. Like He didn't even need another hypnotist to do it. He could do it himself just by looking in the mirror. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, he often went and would, would attend Manly P. Hall's lectures. And if you read the book, The Assassination of Robert Kennedy, by William Turner and John Christian. That's that's the best book about the Robert Kennedy assassination. In fact, that's the book I read that kind of got me down into the rabbit hole, you know, of, of conspiracy research. Because because unlike the JFK assassination, the RFK assassination is less complicated in the sense that it's in a uh, a very um, enclosed space. It's not like Daily Plaza where you've got these shots coming from everywhere. In in the case of RFK, you've got shots coming from Sirhan's gun which were probably blanks. Uh, and then you got the shots coming from behind, which were those shots that actually killed him, uh, which was probably the, the security guard, uh, whose name was, I think, uh, Eugene Caesar, I believe, was the security guard. I think so, yeah. And later on, there was a, a reporter who actually became friends with Eugene Caesar, actually did real investigative reporting and pretended to be his friend and recorded him surreptitiously. And you, you hear on the tape Eugene Caesar saying, ah, oh, yeah, I hated the Kennedys, but, you know, I just accepted that security guard position because I needed the money. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so the suggestion is that he was the guy who actually fired the shots and that Sirhan was like the magician's uh, handkerchief, you know, waving in the air, distracting the audience, you know. Uh, and so... Immediately preceding the, uh, and, and you know, so Turner and Christian suggest that Sirhan was in a hypnotic trance when he was actually shooting, because he has no memory to this day. He absolutely has no memory of actually the event. Yes. The, la the first thing, the last thing he remembers is having coffee with a beautiful woman in a polka dot dress. And then the next thing. I was going to bring up the polka dot dress. Yeah. The, the next thing he remembers is getting the shit kicked out of him by uh, Rosie Greer, you know, because Rosie Greer was there that night. And he was actually helping Kennedy with the, uh, uh, with the security uh, because there were no LAPD officers there doing security. So all the security was either hired by the Ambassador Hotel or by Kennedy himself. And so Kennedy had Rosie Greer there as like a personal bodyguard. And, and so when Sirhan starts firing, Rosie Greer uh, jumps on top of him and starts beating him, you know, in the face. Uh, and uh, so imagine that. Imagine you're having like you're having lunch with me, <laughs> and then and then a second later you slip forward in time, and Rosie Greer, a professional football player, is beating the crap out of you. You know, like how? Oh, there's a there's a senator bleeding next to you. There's like, no mind control there, is there? No, nothing, nothing odd about that. I mean, clearly. Phillips, uh, please. And to this day, he still he still remembers none of it. And, and of course, you might say, "Oh, well, that's um, he could just be saying that. He's just lying about that." But in fact, when they arrested him, Dr. Jared Sidney Diamond, who was, you know, the main hypnotist who the police would call in on cases like this, they actually had Dr. Diamond 
put Sirhan under hypnosis to see if they could pull any memories out of him. And during the hypnotic, he's, Dr. Diamond said that he'd never met anybody who went under as quickly so as, as Sirhan did. And he was surprised by that. And then when he had him under, uh, he, uh, uh, he tries to get him to remember the shooting. And if you listen to the entire recording, you hear how slowly it becomes him trying to coax memories out of him into trying to implant memories into him. He'll start saying things like, Sirhan, you remember it. You remember grabbing the gun. You remember pulling it out. You remember pointing it at Senator Making Kennedy. Yeah, you yeah. remember shooting yeah. the senator. And then he even says at one point he loses control, and Dr. Diamond goes, you son of a bitch. You remember it, you son of a bitch. You know? And despite all of that, even though he was under hypnotic trance and getting these suggestions from Dr. Diamond, he brought him out of the trance, and he still didn't remember anything. You know, So that's how much of a block there was that had been planted into him. Uh, and, and so... Getting going all that was a long a detour, but going all the way back to the beginning, one of the places that he was hanging out at was the PRS, and uh, and uh, so Turner and Christian bring up the fact that Manly P. Hall was an expert hypnotist, and here he was hanging out at the PRS, and so was this just a coincidence, or he, they were trying to figure out who was it who did the programming and who put him under, and so they kind of throw that out there as a little like um, uh, suggestive hint that, well, did Manly P. Hall have something to do with this, you know? Ultimately, they decided that uh, it was this guy, Louis Jollyan, uh, not Louis Jollyan West, but um, um, what was the name of the mind control guy who uh, put Sirhand under? Uh, his name is his name is in the book, The Turner and Christian Assassination of RFK. Uh He's a very strange character. I'm trying to remember uh, his name, it's escaping me. He apparently he had a, he had a pillow talk with some prostitutes where he actually confessed to having hypnotized Sirhan Sirhan. Uh, um, he actually was kind of bragging about it that he had hypnotized him, and he couldn't have been meaning in, under the context of some like um, actual like genuine therapy it had to have been in the context of hypnotizing him to kill Kennedy because Sirhan had no connections to this guy you know there was no official connections between them uh, uh, and so the suggestion is that all those diaries that Sirhan was keeping where he would write like RFK, RFK must die RFK must die right. he's writing it over and over again mm -hmm. that that's that was part of the that was part of the programming but yeah so the PRS is, is a nexus of all of this. You get Lugosi, you get you get Saran Saran, you get, it's a, tied into RFK, you know. That's strange. Um, have you ever looked into any of the uh, John Lennon stuff with Mark David Chapman? Oh, oh yeah. Looking into that? That, uh, I, I came up with my own phrase to like, divide the different assassinations so obviously JFK and RFK were killed for specific political reasons you know JFK was going to end the war in Vietnam um, all the panoply of reasons you've you've heard right and then and then of course RFK wanted to become president so 
he could begin looking into the investigation into into who actually assassinated his brother. You know, uh, and so both of them had to go. Obviously, now with John Lennon, it's you know what, what was the purpose of it? You know, uh, he had been out of any sort of active political. Uh, movements for many years because he was trying to become a citizen of the yeah. United States, and so he had backed off being the public face of any kind of political protest or anything. For, for for several years, he's just living in New York. He's, he's recording, you know, and he's being a father, but he purposely did not get involved in any political activity because he didn't want it to jeopardize getting United States citizenship. Then when he finally became a citizen, he slowly started getting back into it. And in fact, he was going to have, um, uh, he had planned some sort of political protest in California um, regarding migrant workers or something like that uh, when he gets shot in December. But the timing is interesting because Reagan is elected president in November. uh, And you got the whole situation with rigging the election uh, so that uh, making the deal with Iran so the hostages would not be released until after Reagan uh, was elected president. Literally the day he was inaugurated they released the hostages. Right, which was apparently arranged beforehand and that George Bush Sr. had a lot to do with with arranging all that, you know, behind the scenes Uh, and that all that becomes tied into the Iran-Contra affair uh, later on. Uh, and so, uh, w- so Reagan had just been elected, and then a month later, John Lennon is shot. And so, Mae Russell, who was, you know, Mae Russell, yeah, yeah the, 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 the queen of conspiracies, right? Uh, I've she, just kind of started getting into into her stuff. Oh, it's amazing! Because I just posted something on on my blog in in honor in honor of the 50th anniversary of the RFK assassination. I posted two links on YouTube to two of Mae Russell's broadcasts because her show is called. Dialogue conspiracy, and one episode was from '71. The other episode was from I think '76, and so I posted the the link to the Washington Post article that was just published a few days ago, where it said that RFK Jr. met with Saran Saran in prison in San Diego, where you just were, and uh, you should have met with Saran Saran. Everything was always around San Diego. (laughs) It, It does. Well, it's a military town. It yeah, always it has is, been. It really is. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was the primary reason I was there, because that's where my stepson was. Right. And uh, and I assume your stepson has not been asked to wear invisible... Uh, not, that he's, uh, not that he's told that. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. Um, so, so, Sir Anson was in San Diego. RFK Jr. met with him face-to-face and made a statement to the Washington Post afterwards and said, I'm absolutely 100% convinced that he had nothing to do with the death of, of my father and uh, furthermore I think that there were there was at least you know two gunmen you know involved in the situation well so in this broadcast in 71 uh, which you can hear on YouTube you hear May Brussel saying exactly that you know and and it wasn't like May Brussel was an investigative journalist you know she wasn't a trained journalist in that way but she was was an expert at pattern recognition and she would read like 20 newspapers a day uh, and she would see the connections between all these events and she was able to figure it out just by pattern recognition and so she had written about Watergate before the Washington Post broke the story she she wrote about it in The Realist which was Paul Krasner's 
underground <laughs> magazine. And she talked about it on a radio show as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah because she, she had seen the story about the break-in. She realized that this was linked with this story over here and that, that linked with this story over here. And so she had figured it out, you know. Uh, and so it's just, it's really interesting, like, someone like that who was kind of poo-pooed, you know, and dismissed as, as being a nut. Uh, she was, what she was commenting on is being reported in the Washington Post in 2018, you know, and here she is saying it back in 1971, you know. Um, it, it, it's really fascinating how the, the time lag, you know, between these things. Um it was also, oh yeah, Seymour Hirsch, you know, Seymour Hirsch, who, who was an investigative journalist who, who wrote about Watergate, and, and um, uh, he, he also, um, he, he was the one who first reported about Frank Olson, you know. Yes, the, the, yeah, I saw that documentary. Uh, Wormwood? Wormwood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Seymour Hirsch, I think, is interviewed in that documentary, is he, is. he not? Uh, um, he won't give up his source. Right, right. That's the part of it. It, it's interesting. Hirsch was actually asked about Mae Brussel at one point, and he said that Mae Brussel was she was she was crazy, but she was right. Uh, so that was his attitude about it. You know, that's as far as he would go. Yes, she is crazy, but she is also also correct. Right, right. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I got to ask you about uh, we had on our show Solaris Blue Raven not too long ago. I think you're aware of her. Oh, yeah, I, I've yeah. been on her show. Yeah. You know, it was an interesting show. And. Uh, uh, you know, as I, I said on the show, you know, I can't really get my, because of your, primarily because of your work with Camellio, I can't discount any of, the, of her story. Like, I'm not sure if she's getting messages from the band Rush, but it could be coming from somebody. Get this. So I, I know that you know a lot of these people that targeted individuals and the, the MyLab stuff. And so so uh, I, I listened to your interview with okay. Solaris Blue Raven. Then a few days later, I was on her show. So she told me that, um, I mentioned something and she said, did you read my book um, uh, or did you see the do my documentary, I the Remote? And then she mentioned her book. Uh, and I said, I got the documentary, but I never received the book. And so she said, well, I'll send you a copy of the book and I'll put some other things in there with it, right? So she sends it to me. And I get it. This was just, I got it in the mail just a few days ago. And uh, so I, the package of her books are outside. And I bring them, I open it up. I see that her books are there. Then I got to take my daughter over to Supercuts to get a haircut. So I immediately leave and I take my daughter outside and walk a few steps from my apartment building. And on the window of, of a Rite Aid that has, is out of business are two posters that I've never seen before. And in fact, I've never seen post, I've never seen anyone hang posters at that spot before. But I open the books, walk a few steps, and there's two posters. One, one of the posters says Rush. <laughs> 
And, and then the other poster says, are you a Rush fan? Uh, okay. Rush fan event in Long Beach. Uh, it, it's like totally random. Are there Rush fan events in Long Beach? I mean, I didn't even know. I, I've never seen a poster with Rush's name on it since like 1982 or something. So I get her books in the mail, and then I walk a few feet, and someone has put these two posters. Now, I don't either. That was like cosmic coincidence. Or it was like some sort of like haha message, you know, we know you got her books in the mail. Uh, or who knows? Um, now, I remember, now obviously, when you first hear the story that Rush was involved, your one's initial reaction is, well, that's pretty weird that, that Rush would be involved, you know? But it actually. That was my initial reaction. It actually makes sense when you start thinking about. Well, you got to. Uh, I remember reading Kathy O'Brien's book, Transformation of America, back in 1994. Do you know that book? I'm aware of it. Yeah. Uh, have you read it? I've not read it. Uh, okay. My uh, co-host Serfiel, I think that he's read it. Uh, okay. No. Now, it, when you read the book, when I read the book in 1994, I thought it was it was kind of nutty. I mean, I thought, well, maybe. Maybe she was a mind control victim and her brain is just so messed up that she's remembering all this craziness surrounding it. So it's hard to discern like what is implanted fake artificial memory and like what is what is real actual experimentation that occurred to her. You know, who knows? It's all mixed up. Fantasy and reality is all mixed up. And the result is this phantasmagoric book. Right. But then over the years, all these things that have happened where something will appear in the news and I'll think oh yeah Kathy O'Brien said that in the book back in 1994 you know and um, one of the things she says in the book is that the country western uh, music scene is all tied in to the mind control experimentation and and you you stop and think well why, why would I can kind of vouch for that living in my well my, my first thing I remember it was in, it was a few years later. It was like 1999, I think. Garth Brooks came out with that album called The Nail, and it was where Garth Brooks had like an alternate personality who was like a mix. Chris Gaines. Yeah, Chris yeah, Gaines, who yeah. was like Trent Reznor mixed with David Bowie, and and he has like a goatee and he's wearing like leather pants and he's dancing with his arms over his head, and it completely destroyed his career like for several years afterwards because all of his fans were like, "What? Garth Brooks is gay? What? What's going on? You know." Uh, what the hell? And it was almost as if, and he when he would be in interviews, he would talk about Chris Gaines as if he was a real person, uh-huh. as if this alter ego, you know. And I'm right. watching talk, him talk about it in the third person. Yeah. Right, I'm watching. I'm thinking maybe Kathy Bryant was right. You know, is, is Garth Brooks a, a mind control subject that's coming out in this weird way? You know, and so when I talked to uh, Solaris off the air, I said to her, "Well, why?" You know, you got Kathy O'Brien saying the country. There's this link between mind control and the country western scene. What would be the link between mind control and the music scene? Like, why country western and why why Rush? You know, and and the answer was actually was logical. She said, uh, Rush hires these private security firms. These bands hire these private security firms to protect them, and that these firms are the same exact firms. That are that are involved in all the gang stalking. Uh, also, it is you're you're traveling and you're getting this constant 
uh, uh, source of uh, potential mind control victims in the form of groupies coming backstage, and 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 people are blasted out of their minds on drugs anyway. So uh, any unusual behavior can be attributed to that. Um, when you, when you suddenly realize that the link is these private security firms who are hired to, to do the security, suddenly it, it, it kind of makes some sort of cockeyed sense, you know. And then also with Kathy O'Brien's book, there's all this other stuff in there that when I read it, I thought that's that's really bizarre, you know that um, that couldn't, that couldn't possibly be true. Like for example, she talks about how Dick Cheney would take her out to his uh, ranch, his cabin in the woods, yeah. and strip her naked except uh, for her tennis shoes. And say you can run in the woods, and I'm going to hunt you down with this rifle. Uh, most dangerous game. The most dangerous stuff, game. Stuff. That's what he called yeah, it. Yeah. He called it the most dangerous game, and that she would have to run as fast as possible, and that he'd track her down, you know, with this rifle. And you're thinking, wow, that's um, that's that, that that's difficult to imagine, right? Flash forward, uh, it's like 2004, I think, or 2005. And I'm walking down the street and next to a newspaper kiosk, and there's a newspaper in there, and the headline says, uh, Dick Cheney shoots friend during a hunting accident, right? Yeah. And I open it up Supposedly and Supposedly they were hunting quail. They were hunting quail. Yeah. And then th- later that, that day, I saw a news conference, and the friend, the guy that Dick Cheney had, quote, accidentally, unquote, shot, the friend comes out on the press conference and says... I got. I really need to apologize to my friend Dick Cheney for getting in the way of his bullet. Uh, I, I, I really have to apologize. It's entirely my fault. I thought, under what circumstances does this occur where you shoot somebody and then your friend actually has a press conference to explain that it was actually your fault? <laughs> you got in the way of the bullet. It wasn't Dick Cheney's fault. <laughs> you know. Uh, let me go on the record as saying that Dick had nothing to do with this. Uh, I, I think maybe they were out hunting, and then Dick suddenly had this most dangerous game flashback, and he just suddenly thought that his friend was Kathy O'Brien and just started just letting loose, you know. <laughs> uh, um, and then the other Dick Cheney-related or story. Or they missed the girl that was playing. That, that's it. Yeah, whoever the Kathy O'Brien replacement was yeah. uh, for 2005 just ran right between them. Uh, and, and, yeah, he missed and then shot his friend, you know. Uh, uh, the... Um, so the other Dick Cheney related. <laughs> that, that that's why they have you have to wear those orange coats, you know, so you don't get shot by Dick Cheney. Um, the 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 uh, she says in the book that Dick Cheney had a 13 inch penis, right? Now you heard you heard it first. <laughs> now, uh, so now flash forward. You know, I read that. Flash forward. I'm watching television around about. Any boxes? You guys need a box? Okay. Uh, you, you know, just give me a. Go ahead and give me a box, and then I'll. Perfect. You know. You finish with your plate, sir. Uh, yeah. Okay. Did you like the zucchini quesadilla? Yes. So you recommend it to everyone coming to I, Long I would, Beach? I would recommend it. Yes. Nice. Come to Long Beach, get the zucchini, the mushroom quesadilla, and Enrique's. <laughs> On PCH. Uh, uh, so feel free to eat though, Robert. Oh no, 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 no! no. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm astral eating. I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, the the um, so supposedly Dick Cheney's penis is over a foot long, right? You know, it's it, it rivals Milton Berle's uh, penis. Milton Berle claimed his dick was a foot. Yeah, it's actually a classic quote from Milton Berle: "My, my dick is a foot," uh, meaning a foot long. Uh, so Dick Cheney supposedly is 13 inches. According to Kathy O'Brien, so flash forward, it's 2005 maybe, 
and I'm watching television. Do you remember when there was a TV show? Thank you. There was a TV show called um, uh, The Mind of Mencia, Carlos Mencia, the comedian. Yeah. Okay, he's doing a uh, kind of a news, almost like, you know, on Saturday Night Live, they do the news, and they'll show a photo or whatever current event, and they make a joke about it, right? So Carlos Mencia was doing something similar to that. He shows a photo of Dick Cheney sitting uh, behind George W. Bush at some event, and he's sitting in a chair, and he has his legs spread, and, and, his, and his arms are uh, at his side. And so the f- photographer got a pretty good shot of Dick Cheney's crotch. And Carlos Mencia had kind of like focused in on it. And he actually made a joke about how large Dick Cheney's penis was. Uh, and you could tell from the photo that, you know, that there was something going on there, you know. Uh, <laughs> and Carlos Mencia actually made a joke about it. And I'm sitting there watching it thinking... This is so bizarre because Kathy O'Brien said this but in the book back in 1994, and you get this weird sort of uh, confirmation, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. coming through all these different sources. So there's, you know, there's the Dick Cheney thing, there's the most dangerous game thing, there's the country western thing about mind control and music, the music scene being somehow tied into each other, and then and then Solaris comes out with their story about Rush. Uh, then I got random people putting up Rush posters outside my apartment building on the same day I get Solaris's box. Uh, and then there's other things that uh, Kathy O'Brien says that are later confirmed. Um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, well, I thought it was amusing that when the, the hashtag MeToo movement started, Hillary Clinton came out and said that if any woman claims that they were raped or molested in any way, that that you should believe the woman first, no matter what. That's what Hillary said. You, you have to believe the woman first. And I thought, that's interesting, because back in 1994, Kathy O'Brien wrote this book where she said that Hillary Clinton raped her and went into extreme detail describing it. So that means by Hillary's logic, we have to, we have to believe that. You, you have to believe Kathy O'Brien is telling the truth. That's true, yeah. And so that means that, that Hillary Clinton is, in fact, a rapist, uh, according to Kathy O'Brien, you know. Damien had an interesting one. I sent him a... Now, this is interesting, because I sent Damien a copy of that book in, like, uh, 2000, or, like, 2001. It was before all the stuff happened with Damien. And I sent him a copy of the book, and Damien read it, and Damien actually kind of dismissed it, and he described it as uh, right-wing porn, because Kathy O'Brien goes into extreme detail about, like, the sexual encounters with, with Hillary Clinton and, and Bill Clinton. And so he thought the whole purpose of it was for right-wingers could read it and kind of get off on it yeah. and also be disgusted at the same yeah. time. Like, yeah. how dare Hillary Clinton do that to this yeah. poor that's woman? What, uh, that's what, uh, that's what uh, our co-serpiel said as well about it. So that's kind of like, so they feel kind of like... Get all self-righteous about it, but titillate it at the same exactly. time. Exactly. So it's, you know, it's, it's a valid point. Now, I mean, ironically, then, like, two years later, Damien gets swept up in a nexus of, of events that's even stranger than, than Kathy O'Brien. I think one of the techniques that they're doing is you take somebody that's already kind of like their lives already on the edge. Yeah. And you just kind of try to push them even further off the edge. And then plus, it's plus no one's going to believe them because our lives are already on the edge to begin with. I, I think that that you know that that's been a, a standard operating procedure for a long yeah. time. Jose Delgado, when he wrote his book Physical Control of the Mind, he was one of the early MK Ultra scientists, 
uh, at Yale. Yeah. And, and in his book, he just sort of blithely mentions experimenting on mental patients and on prisoners, you know. And uh, I assume that the reason is the same, you know. Uh, if you've overstepped your... Um, if you've overstepped anything legally uh, and you've done experimentation that you shouldn't be doing and some mental patient comes out and accuses Yale professor Dr. Jose Elgato of having done that, they're just going to dismiss anything that you say. Um, uh, there, I understand that there is... Uh, I just recently discovered that there is a woman um, in Arizona who's creating a foundation... A group of doctors and psychiatrists to try to help people who are targeted and who are mind control uh, victims or survivors uh, deal with this because uh, very often I'll get contacted by people saying, "What can I do?" And you feel quite helpless because w w what do you say? You know, you, you can't recommend going to a psychiatrist. They're going to think they're crazy and throw them in the insane asylum. You know. And I remember Walter Bohr who I was friends with, who wrote Operation Mind Control, I remember him telling me the same thing, that people would often contact him and say, what can I do? And he would be quite helpless. So he started a group called the Freedom of Thought Foundation, and he got a bunch of psychiatrists together who, who were actually aware that this was actually occurring, that the experimentation was actually happening. And so these people would actually work with the mind control survivors and try to help them deal with the PTSD and overcoming the, the programming. And they would do that by finding the exact codes, cues, and triggers that had been used to program them in the first place and then reverse that. But it's a slow process. And uh, obviously you need a trained professional to do that. But most of the people who have the ability to do that wouldn't believe that it's actually occurring. So Walter, he created the Freedom of Thought Foundation. And that actually was in operation until Walter's death. Um, he died of uh, cancer in December of 2007. So there's been no such organization like that, but until recently, um, apparently, uh, there's this organiza organization that's forming uh, by this woman who's a targeted individual in Arizona. I should give you her name, you know, after this, and maybe you might want to have her on the the air. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know how much she wants to say about it at this point because oh. it's sort of still in the uh, formation stage, you know. But I do know that she she has like real. Uh, real professionals who know how to, for example, test you to see if you have uh, nanotechnology inside of you, or if you if you have an implant inside of you. Damien re recently ran an RFID reader over him, and it went off. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's also, you know, you'll see. Have you seen Solaris's documentary? The, I did watch it. Where yeah. they actually ran a stud finder yeah. over mm -hmm. over her, and, and it yeah. went off. Um, see, see the same guy that that uh, she was that she had do that actually is in a documentary called I think it's like Project uh, Patient Seventeen or something like that that this guy Jeremy Corbell did. It's on Netflix about this guy who believes he's an alien abductee. So he had these these uh, you know Roger Lear who used to pull out the the uh, implants and stuff. Uh, you know, I've, I've always kind of been convinced that that's, that's just something that we are. So I think that's something that we yeah. made. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. why, why would extraterrestrials be using um, 20th century technology back in 
the 1960s. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know, right, it, right. I mean, it is interesting. Isn't it interesting how the, the technology seems to grow with the times? Uh, um, if it were alien, it would simply be advanced and always be advanced and beyond your imagination. In this case, first you start getting the x-rays of the implants like shoved up in the, up the nose or, or in the teeth. Uh, and, and there's physical evidence of that, of, of implants having been put in people, you know. Uh, and, then, and then slowly it changes into this nanotechnology. I, I assume you've heard, you know, Damien told me he, he got a microscope and he put his arm under it and he could actually see this, like, black oil. Like this amorphous black oil threading in and out it's of like these the pores. It's it's like the X Files. It's yeah. also like uh, you know, there's previews for this new movie Venom uh, coming uh -huh. out in October. It's a Marvel movie, and I realize it's based on a Marvel character that was originally created way back in the '80s. Meaning the the black costume that that covers Spider-Man, and it's a kind of amorphous, like liquid-like thing, but it's also an alien symbiote. Yeah. It's like a parasite that connects to his body. So they're doing a whole movie just based on that. It's called Venom. And so in the previews, you see this black oil, like in this glass canister, and there's some government agency, like, experimenting on it. And I wondered... And in the trailer, you can see that the movie is all about... There's some level of mind control there, because the black oil takes over the guy's body, and he's talking to it, and it's talking to him, but it appears to be inside of his mind, you know? And it's making him do things that he doesn't want to do. And so I realized that the character was introduced way back in the 80s in a, in a comic book. However, I wonder sometimes, well, who greenlights these projects? You know what I mean? Like, why, why that movie about black oil and mind control now in, in 2018? You know, there's, and I realized that Sony owns the rights to Spider-Man. They're trying to put out these superhero movies. There's a lot of other movies you could have done revolving around Spider-Man, but for some reason they chose to do this movie about black oil and mind control, you know. It also it makes me wonder about Netflix. You, know, you just mentioned Patient 17, which um, a couple of my students told me about. Uh, uh, and there's all these other shows on Netflix that are about either gang stalking or mind control in some way, you know. If you watch Jessica Jones, the whole first season of that show is all about her literally being gang stalked and mind controlled. Uh, and uh, or that documentary and making a murderer, where it's clearly about this guy who was getting gang stalked by the local police, you know, who hated him and framed him for this for this crime, you know, and uh, or like Wormwood, and um, or Stranger Things, which is clearly based on the Montauk project, yeah. and they just replaced the Montauk boys with a girl, yeah. uh, and the Beast that got loose. It's set in the it's, 80s. It's that know. whole Montauk mythos, which I'm convinced is more has to do with mind control than it does time travel. And yes, I think so as well. Stuff, yeah. I, I'm sure that there were mind control, uh, what they called the Montauk boys, you know? Yeah. I, I'm sure that they, that those existed. You know, those boys did exist and they were there on that base. But how much of it was mind control experimentation, you know? A lot of it's been done on children, you know? The, John Rappaport did a book called... Uh, um, mind control experiments on U.S. government mind control experiments on children, and it was all about the uh, the hearings that were done in the early years of the Clinton administration about the illegal use of radiation experiments on children back in the 50s. And Bill Clinton actually had a press conference and apologized to the nation for it. And oh dear, we shouldn't have done this. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I had uh, a guest, Alta Dillard. She. Uh, she came on my show. We were talking about a lot of her weirder kind of, uh, I 
guess the alien contact experiences that she had. And uh, she told me that she had, you know, she, she's always had like a, a, a good deal of like kind of like psychic ability. And she says she can remember being, I want to say she was somewhere between six and ten years old, somewhere in Colorado. And she said she can remember being taken to the center and being tested for her psychic ability by all these doctors. She doesn't remember who they were. She doesn't remember why. She just remembers it happening. And that triggered in my mind a thought of what you were just talking about. Like, this is, you know, the, it, it really smack, that smacks of like an MK Ultra Project Monarch kind well, of thing. Uh, apparently, the entire purpose of this, not the entire purpose, because of course the intelligence agencies don't do anything unless it scratches a number of itches at, at the same time, but one of the primary purposes is that they are doing experimentation on psychic people, people who have psychic abilities, natural psychic abilities, and they're using that, exploiting it for this whole super soldier program that they've got they've had going for a long time I had a guy um, this was the fall of 2016 and I came out of my class I was teaching an English class I come out of the classroom there's a guy waiting for me there um, and he was dressed in this like orange jumpsuit and there's like a big guy like like in his like early 30s and um but of, you know, considerable girth. Uh, and I, he, he comes up to me and he goes, are you Professor Guffey? And I was like, huh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if to say yes or no. I wasn't sure what this was about. And he said, I, I read your book, Camellio. And so he kind of like tracked me down on campus. He goes, I got a story to tell you. And we went off and talked for about two hours. And the guy was actually, um, he was a, a professor, uh, not at CSU Long Beach, at another campus in the area. And uh, he sits me down near my office, and he starts telling me how he was a part of this whole super soldier program, though he didn't use that term. In fact, when I brought up the term super soldier, he kind of, it was clear he didn't like that term. He didn't want to use it. But everything he was saying applied to what you think of when you hear that term. He was saying that, you know, he remembers, there were times where he's leapt off a three-story balcony and landed on his feet, no problem, you know, and he has memories of assassinations, killing people, and he has a memory of when he was a kid that his parents, and his father was in the Navy uh, back east, uh, they would leave him with uh, an old woman who was, the, the quote, the babysitter, and she would, when the parents left, she would pull out pieces of paper with and crayons and say, okay, I want you to... Um, you know, she like focus, like pull out a map, like point at the Soviet Union. I want you to focus on this area of the map. What can you see? You know, and he would like leave his body, or he would close his eyes, and he was able to see things. And then she would ask him to write down what he was seeing. You know, so obviously they knew that's that, just like eleven in Stranger Things. It's yeah. Exa- yeah. exactly, yeah. Uh, and uh, and it's interesting how this sort of experimentation, in some cases torture, is sort of. Um, Transformed and thrown back at us in the form of entertainment. You know, it's it's almost like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing, where you know where you're kidnapped and you begin to you begin to um, identify with the kidnapper, uh, and and you begin to you know Patty Hearst style think of yourself as as one of the kidnappers. You know, uh, it's it's almost like the American audience, not just American really, just 
the, the audience in general, the global audience, has this ongoing Stockholm syndrome where they're ingesting, you know, this sort of uh, torture and experimentation as entertainment. You know, they could sit there and enjoy, watch their own manipulation and enjoy it as as entertainment. Uh, I, I've noticed that there's a lot of them of those popular TV shows in the past like decade. Uh, usually involve the main character will be a very wealthy white man whose main ability is to con others and manipulate them like psychologically whether it's uh, John Hamm and Mad Men that was his main thing is he was able to manipulate people uh, uh, Dexter uh, also he was able to manipulate people that was the whole point of, of the show um, uh, Breaking Bad, you know, Walter White. Yeah. That was his main superpower, was manipulating people psychologically. It's just interesting that, like, all these shows feature uh, a white man, you know, a middle-aged white man who has the power to manipulate people, and we sit there and we ingest it and we watch it and we are entertained by it. Um, that's just an interesting side note. Uh, but... Uh, um, I got lost in my own syntax there. I got lost in the labyrinth of my mind. Where did I, where did I start out from? Where did that tangent begin? Well, we were talking about the, uh, the children, the experimentation of the children, the psychic, oh, know, yeah. super soldiers. Uh, okay, so, so this guy, so I'm talking to this guy, and he's telling me about how as a kid, he was obviously being used as a remote viewer, and he didn't even know it. And then later on, he was actually being used to like assassinate people, and he met with me, and I could tell he, was, he didn't seem mentally unbalanced. Um, he seemed agitated. As you would be if you were telling a stranger intimate details about your life, you know. But he didn't seem mentally, he didn't seem insane in any way. And he told me that right before he came to meet with me, he had been at work on the campus where he teaches. And he knew he was going to come see me. But he told his boss that he was going to go on lunch. Just as he's leaving, his boss, out of the blue, comes up to him and goes, uh, remember uh, what happened to Tom Horn? Now, if you don't know Tom Horn, you know, they did a Steve McQueen film about Tom Horn. Uh, um, Tom Horn was like a hired assassin in the, in the Old West. And uh, he, um, he talked uh, about uh, who had hired him, and then they hanged him. And, and, and so... Uh, the message was, you know, you re- remember this because we know you're going to go and talk to somebody. Now, how would they know that he was going to go talk to somebody? Was it just because they looked at his Google searches and he looked me up and simple as that? Or is there some way that they could actually read the interior of his mind? But he came to me and he said he wanted to tell me all this because he thought that he was in his early 30s and that his use to them was sort of like at an end. Uh, and that he felt like his time was limited, that they were going to get rid of him, and that he just wanted to tell someone the truth for the first time in his life. You know, I wish I'd had one of these things, uh, uh-huh. a recorder with uh-huh. me, yeah. uh, so I could actually record what he was saying. Um, and and I, I, you know, I haven't seen him. I haven't seen him since then. I've tried to contact him. He gave me his email address, um, and he has not responded to any of those messages so it could be that everything he said was you know t- just totally made up and he just came to mess with my mind for some reason but there were little details that he said that just seemed to jive with things that other people have told me who I know are not lying 
Uh, I, I know a woman who's a successful entertainment lawyer in Hollywood, and her father was a judge in Washington, and apparently she was a victim of ritual abuse, and uh, uh, he sold her, well, sold her, initiated her into a, a mind control program when she was a little girl back in the 60s. And she has memories of wearing camel fatigues out in the forest of Pacific Northwest, you know, shooting you about this uh, guns. Show, yeah. uh, and and uh, Tessa Dick, uh, who's Phil Dick's widow, uh, she remembers when she was a girl, uh, they told her, well, we're going to put you in the special class for talented kids. And they, without her parents even being aware of what this was, they took her off in another room. There were these, quote, grad students there. And they would do things like they would put something in their pocket and say, "What? What's in my pocket?" You know. And then, and then Tessa Dick would have to say, "Oh, well, it's a ball." And he, "Oh, very good. Yeah, it was a ball." You know. And then they would do, you know, "What's under this sheet?" You know. And so, ostensibly, it was supposed to be like a like a gate program, like a, you know, for smart people. But actually, they were testing their psychic abilities. And this story, you know, I've heard this from you know, Melinda Leslie. Uh, who's, you know, uh, my lab experiencer uh, and an alien abductee. And I've heard it from, well, Tessa Dick said that the same thing happened to Phil Dick when he was a kid. And, you know, he was born in 1928, I believe, or 19, uh, 1928, I think, is when he was born. Which means that when he was a kid, that would have been in the 30s that they were doing this. So, you know, this is a, that's going way back. But it, in a way, it kind of makes sense because... Um, uh, according to Walter Bohr, the mind control operations were, they were operative, not experimental. They were operative even during World War II. So in order for it to have been operative in World War II, they had to have started 10 years earlier than that, and that would have been around the time Phil Dick was, was a kid, you know. Uh, so this whole um, milieu of experimentation on children and of exploiting innate psychic abilities uh, seems... Uh, to be the connecting point across the decades all the way up to now. Wow. Wow. I believe that's a good place to stop it. It's been an hour. Has it? It, it has. Oh, wow. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> you, do, do you have, do you, are you, do you have a car? Yeah. You, you, yeah, you, came, you, you yeah. rented a car? Yeah. Um, uh, I should, I should take you, and I'll, I'll show you the rush poster. Okay. <laughs> it's you can you can just drop me off and then I'll show you the the rush poster. You know. Okay. Yeah, that'll work. Uh, so, so you can see I'm not lying. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Robert. Here. Yeah. I love that rock out there, man. 
That's more that a rock. rock. is incredible. Yeah. Bigger than giant rock. <laughs> yeah, I thought this is the true giant rock. But we were talking about your um, your other book, because you got the contacting book coming mm-hmm. out with Greg. That will be coming out soon. talk a little bit about mm-hmm. it. Then I started working on a uh, book. Well, it actually started as an article about ten years ago. <laughs> and it was uh, on basically underground based dulce disinformation. It was going to be a long article. So I was kind of pecking away on it over a number of years, you know. It'd be on the back burner and I'd revisit the dis- I'd keep working on it now and then just to keep it kind of fresh and whatever. So finally, after 10 years, I got more serious in the last couple of years and it's almost done. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Greg Taylor, uh, Daily Grill, is interested in publishing it. So the okay. main book is done. There's like an afterword I'm working on. And yeah. <coughs> that's where it's at. So you might probably see it next year, I'd imagine. What's kind of the premise of it? Because, I mean, it's been like a while. It's been, it's been like almost three years since I've talked to you about it. Yeah, it's kind of about the uh, UFO subculture in a sense, but it's about... A lot of the disinformation or misinformation stories like Dulce and how that connects to a bunch of other, uh, what's the word, other things in UFO mythology that kind of uh, borrow from other stories, you know. They're all kind of related with uh, the saucer crashes or a common theme and that ties into MJ-12 and that whole story then uh, with underground bases that's another theme there's Dulce underground base was kind of the start but there's supposedly or there's been stories about underground base at Area 51 in a number of places so it's just looking at how all the, all those stories got started who are the people involved in you know, promoting that mythos how does the uh, how does the Sakura Incident. Does that, does that connect to underground bases? That's the is that Gabe Valdez that saw the no. The, uh, you're thinking of Lonnie Zamora. Lonnie Zamora. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not an expert on that case, but it's not. It's on. Doesn't really connect to the saucer crashes because there was a few of those. There was Aztec originally, which was kind of proved to be a hoax, but uh-huh. then a lot of the stuff associated with the Roswell story was stuff that was in the Aztec crash. It's like there was like hieroglyphics on the saucer that crashed and there was uh, aliens uh, that either died or once survived whatever they were taken to Wright-Patterson or whatever so that's kind of the same story as uh, what Roswell. What years said that Aztec happened? Well, there was a book that came 47 or 40, yeah, there was a book that came out in like 1950, but it was later pretty much proved to be a hoax, even though today there's people who believe it's or are promoted as a real story. Yeah, I, I noticed, you know, because I'm going to go, I'm, probably one of my last stops on this trip is going to be Santa Fe, just to check it out because I've never been. Ah. And I noticed just, um, you know, coming down. Through from Colorado, 
down south, like Dulce and Aztec are pretty close, pretty close together. Are you to meeting up with anybody else? No, just going, just to, just to, uh, just. To I got a friend who could uh, show you around. Oh, really? Okay. If you're interested. Okay. If yeah. they're if they're available. Yeah. Or just meet meet with them, uh, and they could give you some pointers and. Okay. Have lunch with them or something. Yeah, I've always, I've just, you know, it's, it's, it's a really old town and really. You ever been, been there to Santa Fe? Mm-hmm. This is. We know, we filmed part of the movie I'm in outside of Santa oh, Fe. Yeah, we need those are the friends. That. Those are the friends I'm talking about that live in. Oh, okay. Santa Fe that kind of hooked that up. With some of the uh, locations. This is an old Spanish town, and I'm just, you know, I'm just curious to see it. Yeah, because yeah. history is my thing. So, you know, this friend I have there, she really, she knows the, uh, she's been there for a while in and out of Santa Fe, so it's kind of changed here in recent years. It's it's still a, a cool cultural artist town, but yeah, yeah, it's getting starting to get gentrified a little bit. Oh really? I, I guess it was a historic district too, because you know I went down to the. Uh, Old Town San Diego as well, which was mm-hmm. which was really, really, really pretty. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's this movie that you're? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you familiar with the uh, Latitude Thirty Three stuff that's on YouTube? Uh, Greg and I were in one of their uh, videos. We're nodding your head. So. I'm not familiar with. Them, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm familiar. Yeah, I mean. Well, it's like, like, boss, like Walter stuff, you know, but that's not Oh, did I say Latitude 33? I meant to say uh, Mandate 33. Mandate? 33, 33. yeah. Okay. okay. It's Bill Darman and a buddy of his started to do some YouTube videos, and they were going to try to sell those to a, uh, try to a network or something, kind of paranormal theme, but more... Kind of inspired by Weird America by Jim Brandon. If you're familiar with that book, going yeah, out yeah, to some yeah. of these sites and just kind of looking at them and talking, interviewing people about it, and so on. Uh, you'll find if you look on YouTube, Mandate 33, and there's the one they did with uh, Greg and I was out at uh, the uh, kind of about. Jack Parsons there. If I'm forgetting the name of the Devil's Gate Reservoir, we filmed that at. So, okay. and so Bill, he's the he's the co-director of this film with Christopher Ernst. They started a production company a couple of years ago, Bright Rectangle Productions. So, he's had the gold, the desire to do a uh, feature film for many years. Finally, got around to doing it. It's kind of a. It's called. Uh, the Hill in the Hole, it's based on a uh, Fritz Lieber story, but there's, it's like an occult, ghost, human sacrifice <laughs> story, kind of Twin Peak-ish, kind of some humorous elements, and, uh, you know, Twin Peaks, it's humor, it goes from humor to serious to weird, whatever, it's kind yeah. of that vibe, and so for some reason, Bill approached me to <laughs> play a role in the film and I told him, you know, I've never acted right, but somehow he saw me in the role as one of the characters in the film. 
Who do you play? Like, what's your character like? He's a. Uh, I usually have a line. He's like a uh, wisecracking, sociopathic uh, cult leader that also has owns a uh, fried dough truck. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of moving parts. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds rather. And so you brought up Santa Fe. We uh, when we filmed it, it was crazy. It was like a couple, two and a half weeks of. I'm the oldest one on the uh, the whole crew, you know. <laughs> sure. A lot of every all the actors and production people and whatever. It was all millennials. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Right? Yeah. Pretty well, Christopher. Chris Ernst and Bill Darman, are, they're a little past millennial, but yeah, and a lot of these were Chris Ernst. He's, he uh, teaches film in, uh, where is it, Maryland somewhere, so he was able to hire a bunch of his students. He, cut, he did it like that, you know, giving them a chance to experience actually being on a film. Food is income. Nachos? Yep. Wow, that's half nacho. That's yeah, impressive. You guys have right Thank you. Yeah. That's good. That's a lot of fries. So uh, that's a lot of nachos. I was going to say so. Two and a half weeks we filmed Santa Fe outside of Santa Fe. Then we went to. Uh, Need anything else with this, or is it all looking good? I do have ketchup and mustard. Jazz I think we're good. Enjoy. Then we went to Raton, New Mexico, which is on the border of Colorado. And then just over the uh, Colorado border, there was a site that had a uh, mound that's featured in the movie. So we filmed there, yeah. It's, it's based around this sacrificial mound type thing. But then, and then we went back east and filmed uh, some stuff in Maine. Yeah, I was going to tell you earlier, I might go over to uh, Mesa Verde. Mm-hmm. And I'll continue this. Did you beat it up pretty bad? Yeah, it was uh, just an interesting book. We, we got a lot of, uh, we'll see like Rob, our uh, producer, and the other, the other co-host, basically. You, you talked to Rob. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, he's he's not as maybe into this stuff as, as like we are, so he's kind of like the voice of the everyman <laughs> in a way. So he gets a he gets a huge kick out of he got a huge kick out of it. He said it was like a John Claude Van Damme movie. <laughs> the way that it <laughs> the way that it was, and uh, but yeah, we did the program to kill one as well. So if you want to. Check that out. It was, you know, just interesting, interesting, interesting book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mind-controlled assassins type stuff. Yeah, and basically, like, uh, I think, like, his theory is, is that he has all these different serial killers that he thinks are kind of like patsies for these kind of weird Patsies. child cult groups. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, you know. Yeah. It, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty dark and pretty much a rabbit hole. But 
Speaking of carnivals of life and death, mm-hmm. so it is recording. So yeah. you, you are, uh, you have the other part. I guess you could call it that. There's uh, so <coughs> so there was rumors about a, a second part of the uh, downward biography, carnivals and life. Carnivals of Life and Death was, I guess, part one of it, and there was supposed to be another one that nobody knew if it was even around anymore, but uh, let's see, how many years ago? About two or three years ago, Jim Brandon, a.k.a. William Grimstead, got a hold of me. If, uh, you know who they are, your listeners, he was... Friends with Downard back in the day, uh, he was like a prodigy of Downard. Uh, Grimstead, under the uh, that Brandon name, wrote uh, Weird America and uh, Rebirth of Pan. Some of it kind of inspired by. Which he just put out the Serious Rising stuff on CD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. Actually, uh, the uh, director of the film, The uh, Hill in the Hole. We were down doing some more filming in uh, Raton, New Mexico, and uh, we were flying out of uh, Denver. We tried to, we had plans to get together with uh, Bill Grimstead, but it didn't work out. We were we ran late, yeah. So he says he plans to uh, attend the premiere, of the screening of it in uh, Raton, New Mexico, in like the fall. So. You get to meet him then, but so anyway, yeah. There's uh, downward. A lot of people found out about him originally with uh, King Kill Thirty Three, the whole Masonic conspiracy to kill Kennedy stuff, and the uh, this book Carnival of Life and Death. Carnivals of Life and Death came out. I don't know, ten years ago or now by Feral House. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, Adam Parfait. Yeah, was, just passed on. I was just kind of turned on to his work not too long oh, ago yeah. by Sir Fiano. And, yeah, Par- um, Parfrey really uh, gave uh, Downer an audience with, in uh, Apocalypse Culture is the first place that King Kill 33 was pu- published. <clears throat> that was in like the late 80s. So anyway, long story short, I guess, I tried to make it uh, shorter. I've been in contact with Grimstead over the years about because I wrote that uh, kind of mini bio on uh, Downer called uh, God, I forget the names of the shit. The, the uh, James Shelby Downer's Mystical War, and so he contacted me maybe three years ago saying he had uh, what he thinks is unpublished. Uh, Downward manuscript. If I was interested in doing something with it, you know, <clears throat> I said, oh, "Hell yeah!" I guess he didn't. Uh, Carnivals of Life and Death didn't sell, sell real well, so Grimstead didn't want to approach Parfrey about it. Didn't think he'd be interested. And that was true. I talked to Parfrey later, and uh, I don't think he was willing to take it on after Carnivals of Life and Death didn't do well. So. Anyway, he told me the uh, there's more of a back 
backstory on it, but that it was all on microfiche. Huh. And that to get it uh, converted to uh, TIFFs, it was going to cost some money. And that he'd pay for half, if I would pay for half, which can't even remember what it came to, maybe $150, that he'd be willing to do that. Maybe I paid for the whole conversion to TIFFs. And so he finally got around, got it converted, sent it to me. And then from TIFFs, I, had to, I converted it to PDFs. That was a bit of a process there. And I got, there's a lot there. It's like 800 pages of stuff. Is it handwritten? Is it typed? No, it's all typed, but it's like, it's kind of a mess, too, because there's duplicate, not duplicate pages, but there's pages with the same page numbers. Things get a little confusing. There's like uh, two forwards to the book, and I think some of it, one of those forwards might have belonged to Carnival, Life and Death, so it's kind of a getting all this stuff figured out was going to take a while, so I put it into, yeah, I got it into PDFs, and I thought, oh, I need to print, print this all out so I can lay it in front of me and get everything in order and start reading it. This is boring behind-the-scenes stuff, but I printed out like 10 pages, and that, there's like a black, there's a black border around everything, so that like, Wasted my whole cartridge ink, you know. Oh, nice. So it was going to take <laughs> hundreds of dollars to print this. Set. So I took it to Kinko's, got it uh, printed out. That was the next step. That's why these things take a while. That costs more than the conversion. That was like 150 or something to print out all these pages. It was quite a bit. So I got it all printed out, and I got all the... Uh, oh. So the next step was, okay, let's just OCR this stuff. Well, that didn't really work out either. It was going to take more time. The OCR, we're going to have all these uh, problems with it. You're going to have to type the, up the whole thing anyway. So I thought, okay, I'll... What's OCR? <clears throat> you basically take uh, a PDF and you run it through a program where it turns it into a, a Word doc. Gotcha. Okay. But you get all kinds of weird stuff like yeah. Yeah, symbols and stuff yeah yeah. and so I think I wrote a uh, on my uh, story of the story blog that uh, that was the next step I was going to type this up and I'd kind of edit it as I'd go along and uh, either I asked for if anybody wanted to help typing it or people just volunteered so like there was like about 10 people that volunteered and I gave them all their assignments and gave them some goodies in return. I'll give them copies of the book. So I got all those back. So that's where I'm at. Now I've got to kind of pull it together and edit it. And I'll, I'll do that next year. This is uh, summer of 2017. So start working on it more next year. I, As I understand it, like the first part, if that's... If it is indeed the second part, well, it it, it is and it isn't. It's partly. Uh, I haven't read every page of this thing, but yeah, yeah. Part of it is his. Uh, there's biographical stuff, 
later in his life after the carnivals of life. It's kind of, some of it's as crazy as carnivals of life and death, but it's interesting. Then others is just his theories and ideas and stuff. As I understand it, like, I think Parfrey had to seriously edit the first one. Quite a bit. So, I guess that you're kind of looking at doing the same, the same kind of thing with this one. Mm-hmm. Some of it's not too bad. Some of it doesn't take a lot of editing. Yeah. Some of it, yeah, other parts of it like, ah, it's not very well written, so. I don't want to lose his uh, voice, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is there, um, I mean, is there any specific um, thing that you could say, like a like, story that is in it that is that stands out to you? Not really, but he claims he met... Uh, he went to Mexico and he uh, lived in, uh, there's an artist colony there. It's pretty well known, but I can't tell you what, San Miguel or something or other. He was there for a while and there was like all types of uh, cloak and dagger shit going on, like Leon Trotsky was involved and everybody's yeah trying to set him up. <laughs> Suck him into some type of uh, scam. <laughs> but then he also writes about the, uh, what did he call her? The uh, uh, Great Whore? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I've read most of the first one. And this this is a, will be more interesting than the first one. You think so? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're gonna you, your plan is to publish this. Oh yeah. At a certain point. Oh yeah. Okay. That's very next cool. year maybe. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. It's more interesting. Sergio's gonna be super deep <laughs> to hear that. It's more interesting than carnivals of life and death. I think there's there's more there, but you got to be into this shit. Carnivals of life and death is like just kind of telling a story of his younger years, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That was basically it. It wasn't a lot of his uh, He's killing a bunch of guys and <laughs> he does a little cap and This gets more into the weeds of uh, a lot of downwards theories, the King Kill thirty three yeah. and a lot of that stuff. But yeah. then also some some of these uh, biographical stuff which is yeah, it's kinda of, it's kind of a head scratcher, like some of the. <laughs> I thought I would run this by you about downward as something that we kind of noticed um, from reading the first book is that he he comes up, you know, every, there's a lot of very outlandish episodes in the book, and it seems very similar to say someone like uh, you know we've we've talked to these people one person that claimed to be a Martian super soldier and these, these, Par- these suffering from paranoid delusions or like Kathy O'Brien mm-hmm. that, that kind of stuff and, and uh, yeah it, it seems it seems very similar in the way they, they build themselves up to have this like absolutely amazing life mm-hmm. and what's your do you think that he kind of is in the same vein 
maybe just I'll be just a little bit earlier than. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in so many words, yeah. But then he was uh, these guys who were uh, his prodigies. There's some serious, pretty serious dudes like Grimstead and yeah. William Hoffman, or who were also one time or another kind of into uh, white nationalism and that type of stuff too. It's complicated. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was at. Um... But th- but they considered him like a uh, their mentor in a sense. So they took him uh, serious. Some of these stories, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of hard to believe that this little five-year-old is like... Uh, <laughs> my favorite part was when he's being raised by coyotes in the desert. That was my... I don't even remember that. That was my favorite part. part. I think they talked about in Carnivals of Life and Death where he'd have a squirt gun full, filled with ink. Uh-huh. And he'd shoot, shoot the people who had real guns in the uh-huh. eyes. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and in this... Uh, Part two, if we want to call it that, he also breaks out the squirt gun now and then, so it's like something, if he was really doing that, he used in his later years. Right. <laughs> do, you, do you think you're going to call it part two, or do you think you're just going to maybe have a different title for it? Oh, there'll, just there'll be it? a title, I kind of know what it is, but yeah. not positive. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. I I, uh, I think you're gonna have to come to uh, well, gotta get you out to Nashville, but I guess we'll have to go to Memphis where, <laughs> where uh, Mr. Downer was from. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, I was out there a few years ago, and I was going to. Uh, I know where his uh, sister is buried. He lived with his sister towards the end of his life. Yeah. He was, and, uh, but there's, I couldn't find any record, you know, like find a grave of uh, James Shelby Downer. Because when I got, first got into this shit, it was like, did this guy even actually exist, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's where we were kind of like on that, too. Like, but then I know Parfrey visited him, mm-hmm. and now I'm sure Parfrey wasn't making that uh, shit up. But I still wasn't sure that like, Parfrey and Grimstead and these guys kind of made up this character to tell this uh, story, but then I talked to other people and they shared correspondence, people who wrote to Downard like in the late 70s, and yeah, they were coming from this address where where he was at, I mean, if he was, uh, these guys were pretending to be him and they were living at this address and uh, Memphis, I guess it was. And then I uh, found more information that, yeah, that was his sister that owned that place. I forget her name. It wasn't Downard, but... Uh, <clears throat> and I checked, find a grave, and found she was buried there in uh, somewhere around Memphis. When I was out there, I was going to go to that uh, cemetery and check it out and see if he was buried there, too, but just didn't, didn't yeah. have time to yeah. do that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty positive that he... Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm totally. I was actually kind of surprised that there was, because um, like, you know, Sir Fielgen, he keyed me in to this, that there was this doubt whether he did exist or mm-hmm. not. I was kind of, like, thought that was interesting that there was actually doubt oh, yeah. that, he was, that he was a real person. I was dubious, but uh, also, uh, 
God, I'm forgetting the guy's name. The co-author of uh, Richard Spence. Yeah, you probably will. Yeah. He did some work on uh, Downard and tracked his history and was able to confirm a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I think the whole thing, uh, he seemed to go sideways kind of after the great uh, whore, whatever he called her. <laughs> she either left him or something went on and, you know, he got these ideas about her that I think that might have been a contributing factor that kind of spun I, his head around. I, I, I think I, I think the downer is interesting from just from my personal point of view that he's, you know, obviously there was something wrong with the guy. You know, he had some he had some kind of mental issues, well, some they kind say of problems. Paranoia but that doesn't mean that he wasn't tuned in right about yeah. something. You know, paranoia is a higher form of awareness. Yeah. According to Charles Manson. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. I don't know if he... Who knows if he really knew, you know, but he, he had a way of uh, piecing things together that were interesting, you know, all how words related to places and synchronicities, and I guess if you look hard enough for that stuff, you'll find it. Yeah, we were. Um, yeah, I was. In, I was in uh, Temecula, and you can see uh, Mount Palomar. Mm-hmm. There. And oh yeah. Mount Palomar is one of the places that he that he talks about. So it's like it triggered that in my mind. You know, this is one of the, you know the myst- part of the mystical toponymy. Oh yeah, uh, William Grimstead is uh, convinced that. Uh, Adamski was in all of this and there, there was some type of uh, ritualistic thing going on at Mount Palomar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That uh, Jack Parsons and the great whore were involved in and all these uh, people. Downard's great whore? Yeah. Oh. The only thing you think of Marjorie Cameron with uh, Parsons, but... Well, he might have been talking about her a little bit, too, because uh, I'm trying to remember the uh, where he lived in Mexico was, for a while was that the artist colony at uh, San Allende something. Forget that, forget the... But that's where Marjorie Cameron, after uh, Jack Parsons died, she lived in that artist community there in Mexico, so maybe they were... There during the same period. Hmm. I need Google handy to tell you the exact <laughs> name, but San Melinde something or other. Yeah. Which you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, about the contact contactee book because. Uh, I'll, I'll, Would you interview Green? When it comes out, I'm gonna have I'll, I'll get both of you guys on to talk about it, but because um, I know that you guys kind of split. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the workload on it. Mm-hmm. Who was kind of like one of the most interesting people that you wrote about? Maybe someone that, you know, because you hear about Adamski and Van Tassel and uh, George Hunt Williamson mm-hmm. was one of the guys. But there's some of the even lesser known. Well, yeah, most of them are 
lesser known. Those yeah. are the big names you <laughs> named right there. Yeah, a lot of them are. I mean, they fall into different categories. Some are out-and-out -out con men. Some are like, did they bump their head, you know, at some point? Or did they really have an experience? These guys are fascinating in their own way. It's like, uh, I'm just starting from going from A to uh, Z. There's like Wayne Aho, who's an interesting character just because... Uh, involved in different stuff, but he was kind of a, uh, you know, he claimed your typical UFO experience in his youth, you know, and then started kind of a uh, community, basically an organization, and they'd, they'd have uh, meetings at like the uh, base of Mount Rainier every year, but he went by the name of uh, Major a Major Wayne Aho, and he, cl he, <laughs> he claimed that, uh, yeah, during World War II he'd been in counterintelligence, but he's one of those guys who, like a lot of the UFO contactees, seemed to be over-exaggerating how much he was involved in the military and whether he was actually a major or anything, and so they, he went to a lot of UFO conferences and spoke, and like Jim Mosley and others kind of poked fun of him and call him uh, Major Aho. <laughs> Major A-hole. <laughs> and Tim Beckley had an interesting story. He was around for years, Wayne Aho. He was, uh, Tim Beckley put on all these UFO conferences and Aho is at one of them one year and he was up speaking at the podium and he kept going you know and his time was up so Beckley went up and tried to uh, tap him on the shoulder and Aho turned around and flipped it in the bird <laughs> and went on talking <laughs> but uh, he started this Aho he's like a lot of these guys he started this new age center and I forget the name of it there in uh, Washington State but he also got involved with uh, Otis T. Carr You've heard of Otis T. Carr? <laughs> Otis T. Carr of the OTC X1, which was a. Uh, Otis Carr said he had created through. He, he claimed he'd been a protege of uh, Nicholas Tesla, and he came up with designs for a UFO flying saucer that. Uh, based on Tesla designs and alien designs and whatever that he was going to launch from Oklahoma City. This was like in 1961. And it became a big deal. He went on the Long John Neville show, promoted this. And like a lot of these guys, they got investors. They went around to saucer clubs. And so all these people were putting money into uh, this flying saucer that was going to launch launch uh, from Oklahoma City at this amusement park on this date and one of his uh, colleagues was Major Aho who was going to be his co-pilot <laughs> during the, the blast off. The name kills me. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you know uh, who Long John Nebel was he was going to go cover this and broadcast live for this historic event.
And there, yeah, there was all kinds of things like people were signing up. We're going to pay for a flying saucer ride from Oklahoma City to uh, California in nine seconds. This type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so when the big day came, uh, Otis T. Carr was nowhere to be found, and we left Major Aho. <laughs> Holding the bag, who uh, claimed that there was some type of mercury leak or something and affect the propulsion system. And anyway, Long John Nebula. It's good for intergalactic space travel. <laughs> That's what I've heard. But there's, yeah, there's all kinds of characters like that. And UFO lore, you could go yeah, down the list. I don't know if I have a favorite, but. It, it, it almost seems like kind of like a. Sideshow, corny kind of, a lot of, kind of aspect to it. There's some true believers too, you know, like, uh, or at least they sound sincere, like uh, Orfeo Angelucci, if you're familiar with that name. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. And he had some interesting stories to tell, you know, a lot of them were kind of uh, almost symbolic in a sense or dreamlike some of his experiences you know then apparently he was quoted later in life that you know that's what he felt those experiences were they were <clears throat> somehow came out of his subconscious you know what, what happened to the contact in the movement it's like why did ideas of why it just kind of eventually just, just kind of just ran its course things progressed technology progressed you know the uh, a lot of the entities they were in contact with were human looking golden haired uh, Aryan usually, usually, usually big boobs yeah sometimes. from Venus and Mars and uh, Nearby then, but as things progressed, it was like, well, I don't know if this played into it, but the, can those planets really, uh, life, can, can there be life on those planets? And then space travel came up, and so as it progressed, it was like the entities that were visiting us were uh, from Zeta Reticuli, and it kind of made more sense that they didn't look like us, they were some type of creatures and it became yeah. there was also more innocence back in the contactee days and I think as we went through the Cold War and all that the general idea was that uh, if something came from outer space it would be malevolent you know if it was malevolent it probably wouldn't be a golden haired orthon it would be a uh, Reptilian or gray-skinned, inhuman thing that you know. I don't know if that's an answer, but no, yeah, that that, that makes sense. I, I think some of them too just kind of became religions mm -hmm. as well, like the Ugarians. Oh, it was all stuff. it was all one big religion. Yeah, actually, the contactees, I think, like. Uh, Jesus Christ had had all kinds of uh, religion spin off of him. The same thing with uh, the contact e movement. 
the Unarians and Eutherius and on and on and on. A lot of these different uh, contactees started their own many cults or religions. The other thing, too, uh, is um, you think in these... I'm sure this will probably come back up in the interview, but you think any of these um, beings that they said that they contacted might have actually been real, but in the sense of something posing as what they wanted to see? Kind of like, you know, the co-creation stuff that Greg talked about. Well, yeah, I mean... It's their interpretation of what they saw. Yeah. It's like an energy or uh, something that manifests. You're going to see it through your lens. It's like my uh, LSD UFO contactee story, which I told you before, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we saw a lot of different stuff, but I necessarily it's funny you that, like, think uh, that you know <laughs> we, we were there at Giant Rock and uh, we went behind, uh, we, we walked around it and on the back part of it there was this uh, spray painted mushroom mm-hmm. on the back <laughs> and I thought well that's appropriate that's that's probably where the real contact is happening mm-hmm. right there <laughs> yeah and that became part of the UFO scene, uh, I think, in the uh, 60s and 70s. A lot of people who were into seeing UFOs were also doing psychedelics. And uh, write about this a little bit in the Contact ebook. It kind of found its way into the giant rock scene in the late 60s and 70s. A lot of people, some of the people who attended those conferences were... spreading uh, the word or spreading drugs or there was some experimentation going on there too. So there was some mind expansion mm-hmm. happening out there in the desert. Yeah. yeah. It all played into it. Yeah, it was quasi, well, it was UFOs, but it was the New Age movement and psychedelics were part of that scene, so it was all-encompassing. It's kind of crazy to think that they would still think that maybe it's something from another another planet when it might be something more internal. Uh. Oh, I don't know. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't wearing in these guys' shoes when they were seeing this stuff, but I think yeah. it was either some of them were con men and con women. Uh, some of them might have had an experience and they got a following and to keep that following they embellished upon that you know uh, some were delusional <laughs> what, what kind of kills me is that the the some might have actually how would I know <laughs> yeah, yeah true the what kills me is like kind of like the, the current like state of ufology and that they they really kind of disown the contact team movement. Like, yeah. it's like, you know, it's an embarrassment almost. Mm-hmm. So you got guys like, you know, like on my show, you know, I asked David Jacobs about it. And he's like, well, they were full of crap, you know. Well, yeah. And this this is scoffs, but like, you look at what he thinks, and, you know, it's like, 
How is that really any well, different? Well, he's yeah, he's uh, believes in the invasion of the body snatchers. So. Essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, I I don't really from you know, you know, kind of an outsider looking in, and it's like, how is it really any different? I don't know what to make of that guy, David Jacobs. Uh, I saw him speak in, uh, maybe it was 10 years ago, or uh, probably at least 10 years ago, at McMinnville, they have a uh, UFO conference there every year, and it's actually put on by uh, McMinimums. <laughs> McMinimums? Who's a, uh, they got, they're a, uh, they have a bunch of brew pubs and hotels around that in Oregon. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. And so it's a big deal, the Mc, McMinnville uh, UFO Festival, and David Jacobs was there. I didn't really know who he was, I'd heard his name, but his presentation was solely on, uh, like, uh, UFO history and pop culture. There's none of this other stuff that he's been involved with over the years. And actually, his presentation was all right, but the stuff I knew about UFOs and pop culture, pretty innocuous, you know. Then it's interesting all the stuff that's happened to him since then. It's like, because his background is basically, I think, is a uh, university... Uh, Historian, yeah, or, I think he's, yeah, he's retired now, but yeah, he's he's a he wasn't he wasn't a clinical psychologist right, or anything, right. yeah, and that's that's pretty much key. Um, well, I, I think for all the guys like Bud Hopkins and all of them, there none of them were like psychologists. He had no license were, to do that. Yeah, yeah, but see that whole thing varies from state to state. The licensing. It's not really uh, psychotherapy in as far as people who uh, go to uh, school to become a psychologist. It's really not accepted as part of the curriculum as, as science-based to be used in their practices. Some In some states like California... You can get a psychotherapist license and use that as part of your work, but it's generally not accepted everywhere as being having a psycho, scientific basis behind it, basically because of the history of the, uh, hypnotic regression and there's the whole... Uh, it was one of the uh, early ones. They hypnotized that lady who, uh, oh, I forget the name of it. She said she would, she regressed back into, what, you know, 150 years ago in Ireland or something, you know. That was, that was like the uh, classic case. The past life yeah. regression stuff. Right, right. Yeah. Well, like the, so know, it's not, it's not. Accepted by the scientific community. Yeah, yeah. Of course, people into uh, the whole scene, you know, basically say, well, that, you know, they're using out of the box thinking to 
approach this phenomena that can't be approached scientifically, but I mean, there's arguments on both sides of the thing. Yeah. yeah. That's why Jacobs and uh, who's the other guy? Uh, he was at the university. He was one of the main. Uh, Talk about John Mack. John Mack. That's yeah. why he caught flack at whatever university he was at because he kind of encountered the uh, same problem with authority. He wasn't uh, sure if he was a psychologist or either. either. He was, actually. Okay. Yeah, he was. Um, he was a... He was, yeah, he was, a, I believe he was a psychologist. Yeah. He definitely was a, was a tenured college professor. The thing about Mac that's interesting... Um, is that he never really made a judgment call on what the nature of the phenomenon was. He never actually said, well, the aliens are here to replace us. Have you read his book? I have not, but the the things that I have, uh, that I've, you know, kind of looked into about John Merrick and all that, you know. I don't know if that's true or not, but I definitely got the impression he was kind of... uh, Pushing that, or was heading in that direction? Yeah, yeah. He may have been trying to be cautious, possibly. You know. I mean, they all say that too. Like Bud Hopkins, he'll yeah. also say that he yeah. had no preconceived notions. But I find that hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of that's that's kind of the problem is when people come with, come at it with some kind of preconception as to mm-hmm. what as to what it is. Sure. So you got sounds like you got a few projects. You got yep. um, this editing this downward book. You got the book coming out with Greg Bishop. You got the other the other uh, UFO book. You got a title for that one yet? Or thought about it? Originally, uh, it was going to be well, it was an article called "Deconstructing Dulce." Uh-huh. <laughs> And it was looking into Dulce primarily, you know, kind of taking that apart and seeing how the story evolved. But uh, talking to uh, Greg Taylor with Daily Grail is going to publish it. At least that's the plan. He thought it needed to be a, a different title, and I agree because it really it goes beyond Dulce, and it's looking at the whole story of disinformation, misinformation and ufology, all the different players involved. And you gotta give some thought when you're uh, giving a title to a book, you know, how to <laughs> what's the best thing to uh, help promote that book as well. Well I'm definitely but, looking forward to all of them. Looking forward to finishing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that you're done. <laughs> For sure. Well, cool. We'll continue this conversation offline. Okay.
in the San Bernardino Inland Park Mall. Inland Center Mall. Inland Center Mall with Walter Gosling. And why are we in the mall? <laughs> this is the former location of Urbita Springs Park, which factored so prominently in the Empire of the Wheel mystery. It is specifically the location of the death of the woman who was called Horace Stanton, who I propose and am convinced was actually at a place, the associate of Harry Longabaugh, the Sundance Kid, and Butch Cassidy. Um, we're looking at a map right now of the mall, just a basic, very basic layout. And I'm pointing out here to Adam that the Sears Inn is the north end of the mall. The now J.C. Penny, who was empty for quite a while, uh, in is the South End. And we just came out of the Macy's. We just came out of the Macy's. And where we're at, where the mall stands today, since 1967, when it was open, um, is where the lake of Urbita Springs Park used to be. Uh, they pretty much, it was pretty much 95% dried up. They cleared it out. They built the mall and this parking lot where the lake used to be. So all this used to be under the lake water. Um, for the most part, not a really deep lake, but there were areas where it was deep enough. And um, north, the, the area, which is the upper part of the map, it's actually eastward um, and to the north. This is where the, the park proper was with the amusement park and the bandstand you know the, the rides and the little the zoo and all of that that used to be kind of on the northeast end and east of you know where the lake was where the mall is now and when we're outside I'm going to show you the tree line that still stands that was the edge of the lake okay. it still stands today and you can see these exact trees um, in pictures from 103 years ago um, so we're going to walk through the mall um, towards the south end. It was the south end of the lake where Coruscant is, a.k.a. at a place that's found dead on the 19th of November, 1915. And um, the store that used to be down where the pennies is now was haunted by her. We'll talk more about that, I guess, you know, when we get there. Pretty much on the 33rd degree parallel, right? Yeah. Right now. So, so there's kind of that 50 year thing going on, right? Because you got 1915, 1967 isn't exactly perfect, right? But 
you well, do talk about that 50 years, that 50 to 100 year cycle. Yeah, I, the, the, the bigger thing that happened in that cycle in this area was that the Zodiac Killer emerged at roughly the 50 year point because his early victim, uh, that's right, Sherry Jo Bates, was in Riverside, and that more so corresponded. Um, that's the one we know about that's close to the 50 year mark. Uh, there might have been other victims because we did tell the police that there were 37 more bodies down here they hadn't found. And, um, 37 more bodies in San Bernardino specifically? In okay. It's, okay. California. Okay. And um, he might have killed somebody in 1965 at the 50-year uh, mark that just wasn't found or hasn't been found yet. Um, they knew about Sherry Joe Bates because her slaughtered remains were found on the uh, campus of the Riverside City College, RCC, okay. I think Riverside Community College now is what they call it. Which Riverside and San Bernardino are almost, is that almost the same thing, like kind of? Yes and no. Um, they were kind of both the sister cities of the original Inland Empire, but Riverside really started to thrive while San Bernardino began to decline. Okay. take you into the store and show you the spots that she, it was reported the haunting activities happened um, in the 80s and 90s. So what was the, as you said, this used to be empty, so what, what was this? It was, it opened, you know? at the time, I believe it was the May Company, a store called the May Company that used to be a big chain in Southern California. And then it became, what was in the 80s, a store called Gotchaks. I think there's still a few of those around. And uh, it was during the Gotchaks period, I believe, that it was, um, that it was, that these haunting stories in particular that I learned about were happening. So now it's a J.C. Penney, and I don't know how long this one's been open. Um, so we'll see. Um, I, honestly, I'm surprised they opened a Penny's because... You know, Penny's has been on some financial hard times and I think was closing some locations down. But this looks to be a pretty nicely uh, appointed Penny's as we walk past the Sephora outlet. And, okay. We're coming up to what used to be. Let's see if it still is used to be the shoe I'm not yeah I think it was the shoe yes it was the shoe department downstairs that she haunted um, uh -huh. and the housewares like china and things like that upstairs right above that she haunted now have you spoken to anybody that since this the pennies has been opened that uh, no has anybody reported anything no in fact this is my first time at the mall since this pennies has been opened okay and this used to be the ladies' shoes section. It's now right. jeans. And um, the employees would just be too scared to go in the back room sometimes. They would come and they'd find the ladies' shoes rearranged after closing. 
the person that would close um, would you know things would be arranged all so all accordingly and then the person who would open the morning would come back and the lady's shoes would be all messed up so they started you know the person who would close would come in in the morning and say hey that that is not how that was left and I got like two or three other witnesses and so you know it was definitely uh, you know very strange uh, goings on upstairs above this was the um, was the housewares and if you want we can go up there and I can tell you what happened there with the guns okay. yeah sure and then we'll come back down here and walk out to the I'll show you the spot now, so so you actually knew about the hauntings and stuff before you started doing work on Empire, the, Empire wheel. the Wheel. Yes. Um, it was the beginning of my research. It was how I learned about the mystery of Cora Stanton. Um, the woman uh, who told me is a local librarian named Ann Walker. And um, she had posted uh, something about the haunting here at this store. And I contacted her to hear about the... Uh, to hear the story. And that's when... Um, you know, I met her at the library where she works in Fontana at the time, and um, she told me about the hauntings here when it was Gotchaks, and then the mystery of Coruscanton, and that's when she said, go look at the newspaper accounts, you'll see what I'm talking about, and that's, I went and looked at the newspaper accounts like the next day, and that's when I discovered the other six victims as I looked outward from the date. Now see... Oh, I notice it looks like they have a pedestrian bridge now. So, this used to be... Yeah. Right over here used to be China and other housewares. It's, it's appliances now, as you can see. Pennies. Yeah, no, we just walked past the, the shoe department. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the penny shoe department. Yeah. And it was here that when it was Gotchucks, it was China and crystal things like that. And they would lock up the store at night with everything in order. They'd come back in the next morning, and there'd be entire displays of the plates, the cups, and saucers on the floor set up. Not really? like they had fallen. It was like somebody had taken it and set it on the floor and set up the display. Huh. And this happened numerous times. And then one time, towards closing, there was a guy in here with his daughter getting, you know, some type of wedding gift or something for his wife or whatever. And his daughter was acting strange, kind of looking down this one aisle there. And he says, sweetie, what, uh, what's going on? What's wrong? She goes, I'm looking at the lady. And he oh, looks okay. down there, he sees no one. Huh. And the little girl says, he says, well, what lady? And she goes, the lady in the old-timey clothes. Ah. And uh, that happened right here in this section. Where and the washers and dryers and microwaves are Oh, now. yeah, where yeah. The, that stuff is now. When it was the old store, it was the, the fine china. So, um, Cora, who I call Ed, you know, seemed to have a, a taste for fine dining wear and stuff. And, you know, we say... They described Cora as a refined lady by the condition of her nail, you know, hand, everything, um, her physical, general, you know, state. And it's suspected that Etta came from an upper-class background. 
So here we have this ghost, old-timey clothes, a woman at the end of the mall where it used to be the lake where, you know, this a woman was found floating dead, you know, 50 years before. Here we have her messing around with fine china and stuff, you know. Uh, there's a theme there. There's a little synchronicity there. And then the shoes, the women's shoes, you know, she was messing with. So she was trying to get somebody's attention, I think, clearly. Let's go out on the pedestrian bridge. We'll go downstairs. I'll show you a spot where I'd like to see the view up here. Because I think this is fairly new. Well, no, actually, it's not. Because I recall the over. That's what was reported. So now we are at, we are approaching the south of the mall. That's north. The mall does that weird bending thing. North is the heights. We're heading south. This is what they call the lonely end of the lake because it's the far end of the lake from where the, all the fun stuff in the park was. This was the kind of a quiet end. And you know, the people would come and stroll. And the, and so yeah, so you you were telling me before, but the so the lake just dried up eventually, and they drained it, and yeah. eventually the the mall was built. This was all lake. For all we know, here's what's interesting. For all we know, and, and this is how weird this stuff gets, Adam. This stairwell we're looking at uh -huh. could have been installed down, coincidentally, 50 years later, leading to the spot where her body was found. Weird shit like that happens all the time. Okay? These guys who put this stairwell in... You know, when the mall was built, they had no idea, not likely, that a woman's body was found there. But it's very possible the way 
this shit is weird in this Empire of the Wheel investigation, the kind of thing I don't put in the books. Um, that could very well have been the spot where her body was found. And what do we have here? We have a stairwell leading down to where the cert- where the water would have been on the lake. Now, I'm curious. Well, we can- because you can still see, as you pointed out, you can still see the embankment. Yeah. Now, they pulled a tree out that used to stand... That's another thing the bastards did. They pulled out a couple of old trees. I was standing right here counting the rings in the stump of an old tree to see if the tree had merely been there in 1915 when the security guy came flying across this lot, come up here, and demanded that I leave the premises, that his boss said, I need to leave the premises immediately. This was about six or seven years ago. Okay. That's yeah, I'm like, I'm counting rings on a tree. Oh, it says you got to go. You got to leave the property now. Isn't that interesting? Huh. You know, okay, I'll go. The trees are gone. So I would say that, you know, for whatever reason, there goes another piece of this. Any kind of connection. No, I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go. to do with her, her death. Seshery has worked that out. I apologize off the top of my head. I don't it's been years since I looked at the details. When he works out a common frequency, um, you know, it's all that esoteric numerology stuff. Her numerology worked out to 14. And um, this parking area used to be number 14. And we've just come down 14 steps to the first landing. And the water, this might have been where the surface of the water, when you look at the old photos, look how high the bank is. Yeah. Okay. This is about where the water was, right here. This landing could have been where her body was found, or at least is symbolic of where her body was found, 14 steps down. That's the weird shit of Empire of the Wheel. And it's the unbelievable stuff. It, it just all depends. This was what they call the lonely end of the lake. And as you can see, it's the dead end of the mall, right? What are you yeah. looking at here? Yeah, You're looking at the dead end of the mall. Yeah, there's no uh, plenty of parking spots. No one's parked here, except for probably some workers' cars. Yeah. And, and what, what, you know, is there an entrance there? I, I, there's new glass doors there, but you see the metal uh, cage pulled across the door, so that's a dead entrance. No one goes in there. Yeah. Um, this is literally the dead end of the mall, and this was the end of the lake where Cora, a.k.a. Etta, was found. And they've renumbered it. So um, Now, here's what's interesting. Just because they've renumbered it doesn't mean there's not synchronicity. See that number over there? 17. 17, yeah. That is a number that essentially worked out for my father. Okay, who died uh, 10 years ago, last week. Just a few days ago. It's really? his 10th anniversary of his death. How many steps did we just come down? 10. Yep. We just came down 10. What did I just say? It's the 10th anniversary of my dad's death. A few days ago. Isn't that interesting? And when we're standing 10 steps 
the new uh, parking area numbering. Okay. Hmm. Um, by the way, you transpose that he was 71 years old when he died. Oh. So 71, 17 is, the, is all mixed in. With by the, the way, August. I was born on August 17th. So, Which, you know, uh, all, all the synchronicity. Now, that's my dad's esoteric number there. Over here, number 18, well, that's a multiple of nine. Right. And nine is huge in my life. And what's interesting is my dad was born in 1936. That's a multiple of nine. 27 years later, 27, another multiple of nine. In 1963, another multiple of nine. I was born. 27 years later, another multiple of nine. In 1990, yet another multiple of nine, my son was born. There's all those nines. So there's my dad's that number That pop 17. up in your life, yeah. yeah. And then right next to it is, is 18. Um, and you but you were telling me that they actually get out of this abandoned part of the mall and you're not supposed to be here. Yeah. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> so, like, leaving the underworld, we just ascended 10 steps from my father's death, and now we're going to ascend the 14 steps from Cora's death yes. back into the land of the living. Okay, we're at the gravesite, and you found... Her because of a bird. Well, I knew she was in the cemetery. The first day I came over here, I took the map. I had no idea exactly where she was buried. And because of what I was getting to in the car when I was telling you how I first came in contact with Henry Day, it started with crow visitations. And so by the time by the time I'm seeing this crow. Yeah, it was a crow that led me to the gate of the cemetery. I had learned by then just following these crows. So I followed this one big crow and he led me here. This was our gravesite. That's what happened. That's how it happened. Wow. Even her wow. The final victim, E.P. Braid, 
was buried at her feet. Now, as you can see, we've got some dirt piled up here where he's been trying to crawl out of the grave. Go through the hole or whatever. This is E. Percival Braid, who was the seventh victim in the Empire of the Wheel mystery, who allegedly shot himself. I question that. Um, naturally. Notice the year he was born. 1871. We were just talking about the numbers 18 and 71. 71 being my dad's number. And uh, that's the, you know, 1871 is the birth date of Percy Braid, of course, 1915 being the year he died. But I am convinced, I'm, I'm not just, I don't like to say simply say I believe. It's more than I believe. I'm convinced that at a place, is lying right there in the ground where you see that headstone core stand. Wow. American history, Western history is lying right there. Six feet below our feet. That's amazing. She was not a saloon girl. She was nobody's wife or girlfriend. She was a secular nun for an order associated with the Episcopal Church. That's why Walter Franklin Prince gives a much uh, publicized suicide a very public official funeral. Let me tell you, no church did that in 1915, not even the Episcopal Church. They're pretty known for being pretty liberal now in many ways. But in 1915, St. John's Episcopal of San Bernardino, there's no way they or any other church in this town would have given someone who was allegedly a suicide Walter Franklin Prince and his wife packed up all their belongings and left San Bernardino. And his next job was to be the number two man at the American Psychical Research Association. Ran, I think, by Harewood Carrington back then. He became, in the following decade, Walter Franklin Prince, became the head of the American Psychical Research Association. And you know what he was famous for in that capacity? He teamed up with Harry Houdini in the 1920s to go after corrupt spiritualists. You read my book, you know the spiritualist connection to this whole mystery. There are some people in the New Age community that when you mention the name Harry Houdini, they boo and they hiss, and you think you've yelled fire in a theater. They still hate him to this day, and some of them revere that most reprehensible of uh, human beings, Marjorie Crandon and her husband, the creepy, probably pedophile doctor. So, it's been a while since I've read the book. It's been a few mm -hmm. years. Yeah. But, he, so you, you think that he knew the minister. He knew who she was. I, I, here's what I think Prince knew. Prince knew that somehow, for whatever reason, and I could name some reason, he, but I think he knew that she was a secular nun um, associated with an order, a secular order that did work for the church. So through his capacity as a minister, he knew her connection to the church, number one. Um, it's very possible that he knew that she was an operative for the U.S. Secret Service because the U.S. intelligence community and the Episcopal Church go back 
Yeah. And uh, so it's also possible that he knew that this woman was also an operative for the Secret Service. Okay? Now, whether he knew that she was specifically at a place, I don't know. But I am sure that the reason he gave her a public funeral is because he knew she was not a suicide. So there must have been something that marked her as a, as a secular nun or something that she wore that he recognized? No, he, he might have been made aware okay. due to the association between that church and the U.S. intelligence community. He might have been aware that an operative would be working in town and just been told, hey, it's a female operative. By the way, she's a, she's a secular, she's a nun for the such and such group. Oh, okay, great, thank you. And then, you know, he, he, whatever degree of information he knew, I say he gave this woman the funeral because he knew damn well she was not a suicide. And, you know, what, what he would have uh, known, how he would have known that, these are the logical conclusions that he, you know, was aware, was aware somehow that um, she was affiliated with intelligence Remember, this was in the middle of World War One. There was a lot of East Indian espionage activity going on in California. A lot of British intelligence, a lot of German intelligence going on, and this was the major railroad hub in this part of the country, in the, in the southwestern coastal, in Southern California, which is the biggest railroad hub. That meant industrial as well as passenger everything. Okay, so a big railroad hub is going to be a place time of war, particularly of World War I, where you're going to have the intelligence agencies of all parties involved present, because it was known that guns were being smuggled through the Southwest to San Diego and put on boats heading to Burma, because the Germans were teaming up with the East Indians to keep their revolutionaries riled up to keep Britain busy on two fronts, right. both in Europe and in India. So that's why the Germans were piping weapons to the East Indians. So that's why you had East Indian agents, German agents, and British agents in California. If you look up the German Hindu conspiracy, it was a huge deal, which is mostly forgotten now. Yeah, the Germans were doing that. They were doing like they did with the Irish too. Yeah, up yeah. To the East Coast in 1916 and and the, the Irish situation here in North America is greatly how I think Harry Longbaugh, the Sundance Kid, was actually recruited into being a federal operative because we know that he was at the uh, the, the Bar J, the, the Bar something ranch up in Canada, which is a big ranch that had a Northwest Mounted Police station added in the late uh, 1800s, early 20th century. Okay, um, the Northwest Mounted Police. They were the only federal game in town, so to speak, in Canada. So any national security issues, they were dealing with. Um, and the Irish situation was considered national security at that time. Um, and there was this Irish activity in that part of Canada. So I go into it in my books, you know, um, and elsewhere. About what about how the I Mexican Revolution? was recruited because of that. But the Mexican Revolution was going on at the same time. Mexican Revolution was going on, and that's why the southernmost rail um, routes, they they would not allow passenger trains to go on those near the border because of the Mexican Revolution and the incursions coming across the border. So 
all passenger traffic between Southern California and the East Coast had to come through San Bernardino. I verified that as I say in the book.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.